Okay, hello everybody. Welcome to our workshop week staff debate. Um, looking around the room, uh, our familiar faces, I think many of you are Birkbeck students, politics Birkbeck students, and it's great to see you. Um, those of you that are not uh, looking around may have been Birkbeck students in the past, and some may be in the future, but welcome anyhow. The word of today is, is populism, and it's in many respects a very un-English word. Um, these islands, I think, have had populisms, but they mainly uh, had an expression in the Celtic fringe. It, there's a big generalisation to start with, but um, it's a word, a concept that's obviously found its way into all kinds of public discourses. And so today we want to discuss the practice, the programme, the origins, the evolution of populism as it's finding expression in, in the contemporary world. That's the business of this politics department of ours. It's also the business of the Centre for the Study of British Politics and Public Life, where, as many of you will know, we try and engage in public life by looking at the relationship between institutions and, and politics in the street or politics in the workplace or politics in the household. Um, and to... To, to aid that effort, um, there's, uh, we have two colleagues and one very special guest whom I'd like to introduce very briefly. On my right is uh, Eric Kaufman, who's Professor of Politics and Sociology, Political Sociology. Just Politics. Just Politics, right. Um, but who many of you will know uh, works extensively on issues of nationalism, ethnicity, um, on political behaviour in these islands uh, and indeed in, in Northern Ireland. Um, on my far left uh, is Jason Edwards, who is a political theorist uh, in the department, uh, works on, on all kinds of issues of, of public life, uh, has written on questions of uh, surrounding republicanism and associationalism and uh, food and um, all kinds of other things. Um, and on my left is David Goodhart, who's our special guest today, and I'm very grateful that you found the time to, to come and share with us um, your thoughts, which are based around a, a book that is about to appear in, in the next few weeks and to be serialised in the Sunday Times uh, at the beginning of March called The Road to Somewhere, subtitled The Populist Revol Revolt and the Future of Politics. Um, and when we organized the theme of, of today's event. As you know, we have one of these every term, uh, and we had populism in the title already. I couldn't resist the temptation of asking Eric, who's worked very closely with David, um, to invite him. David is the founding editor um, and was for many years the editor of Prospect magazine, but he's currently the head of the Demography, Immigration and Integration Unit at the Think Tank Policy Exchange. We were meant to have a um, because it's not our, our aim to have an all-male panel. Um, we were hoping to have uh, another colleague, Sam Ashenden, join us today, not least to bring in some of the theoretical dimensions to this debate. Unfortunately, Sam's dad is, is very unwell, elderly dad, so she's um, unable to come, but we will miss her, her insights. I'll, I'll try and replace, I mean, she is irreplaceable, but I'll try and bring in some, some aspects, some dimensions, maybe of using my, my role as chair. Um, so I think most of you know the format. I'm going to uh, ask the three panellists uh, a few questions that are connected to this broad theme of populism. I think we're going to range quite widely looking at um, the causes, the effects, the impact of this particular ism. Uh, I think we're going to be talking a little bit about its programmatic content, 
about its policies, um, about the, the varieties of, of populism. Um, and then that will be roughly for about an hour or so, hopefully slightly less. Uh, and then obviously I'll open things up for, for discussion. We'll finish at 7.30 sharp because David has to leave. But I hope uh, many of you will stay for some refreshments upstairs. Um, but before policies and program, we need definitions. So I'm going to ask uh, all three to um, speak a little bit about their understanding of populism and, and uh, start with David yourself to perhaps tell us a little bit about how and why you approach this idea of the populist revolt, what your own understanding is of populism in this, in this book. Yeah, okay, well, thanks for inviting me. I, um, uh, I mean, I look at populism mainly as a, as a reaction, as a reaction against the domination of our politics over the last two generations, possibly, certainly generation and a half of what I call the double liberalism, the, the economic liberalism and the social and cultural liberalism. And uh, the, the, the first two or three chapters of the book, at least, is an attempt to, to really sort of tease out the kind of the new value divides in British society, which, which led to, to Brexit, which has fueled um, UKIP, which is, which is in the process, I think, of destroying the main party of the centre-left in Britain. Um, and, I, and I have this perhaps slightly gimmicky distinction um, that um, has rather helpfully been reinforced by um, Theresa May's speech to the Conservative Party conference last year when she talked about the people from nowhere. I talk about the people from anywhere and the people from somewhere as the two, two great value divides in British society. The people from anywhere, most of us, are highly educated, usually quite mobile, tend to place a high stress on freedom, autonomy, tend to be suspicious of, of group attachments of various kinds, um, don't tend to have strong attachments to, to place. Um, I, um, there's a kind of a slightly more extreme end of the, the, the Anywhere group. The Anywhere group, by the way, is about 20, 25% of the population and is growing. Um, and there's a more extreme end of it that I call the, the global villages. Um, and then there's a, there's a group in the middle, about 25% of the population. Then there's a much bigger group, uh, about 50% of the population, like all the people from somewhere, tend to be much more uh, settled, tend not to have uh, been through higher education, often will have left school uh, before doing A-levels uh, in, in modern parlance. Um, we do have uh, do have often strong group attachments, for, uh, are less mobile than the anywheres, uh, strongly attached to uh, place and particular kinds of groups. Um, the uh, as you may know, the um, otherwise rather dull American sociologist who no one ever used to read, Tolkett Parsons, um, came up with one very useful distinction when talking about identity. He talked about uh, everybody have, having identities on a kind of spectrum between achieved and ascribed. And anywhere people tend to have achieved identities, their sense of themselves comes much more from um, you know, passing exams when they're young, going, to, uh, going on to university, um, perhaps uh, going to London if they're in if they're if they're in professional careers, moving to London perhaps for a year or two, perhaps working abroad. Um, that sense of yourself as having been sort of constructed through your own 
through your own um, achievements and abilities. And uh, as a result of that, your sense of yourself is much more sort of protected. It's much more mobile. You can kind of live pretty well anywhere. And um, whereas people with what Talker Parsons called described identities um, are, are much more likely to be discomforted by rapid social change. They can't live anywhere. They 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 are they're more rooted and uh, groups matter to them and so on. Um, I mean, this distinction, I mean, these categories are my invention, um, uh, but they, you know, they exist. I mean, these, these differences exist. I spent a lot of time ploughing through the British Social Attitude surveys, and they, they are there in the, in the opinion surveys. Um, the, you know, the, the, the attitude and value divides I'm describing are, are not my invention. They really are, uh, they really are there. Um, and um, populism in Britain, at least in the last... Um, you know, 10 years or so has been largely a reaction to the domination of politics by the anywhere group. Uh, completely dominated the political agenda. It's very hard to think of areas where somewheres um, have, have had a big say. You, you might say um, the, the concern to limit immigration is a result of um, somewheres telling pollsters that they think it's been far too high. Uh, and that has, that has had an effect, although immigration, as you know, has not actually come down as a result of that. Um, perhaps um, penal policy, maybe. Um, some of us tend to be quite socially conservative on things like crime. So the fact that the prisons are full, you might say, is, a, is, uh, is somewhere influenced. Almost everything else, if you look across the whole range of... Um, <coughs> I'm not particularly talking about economics here, because I mean, economics is sort of partly... You know, it overlaps with some of these themes, but uh, you, know, you can be a free market somewhere or a status somewhere, and same... Same with with anywhere values. Um, but if you look at uh, you, you look at the expansion of higher education and the relative neglect of say vocational education apprenticeships. I mean, I know people are now starting to worry about it, but you know this is after 15 years or so of putting all our eggs in the higher educational basket. I mean, because most of the people making policy were anywheres who'd been to good universities, their children were at good universities. They thought that was what everybody should do. Um, you look at um, the, the, the whole idea of the knowledge economy, I mean, the whole stress on, you know, cognitive ability being the, the kind of the, 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 the gold standard of everything in our society. That, until quite recently, that wasn't the case. I mean, other things, you know, character, experience used to be valued very highly. And, all, you know, almost everything is now, at least to some extent, judged by cognitive ability. Um, I think that the whole debate about meritocracy and social mobility um, it has a bearing on this. I mean, it's a very, um, so, you know, anywhere, I mean, there, there are anywheres of the left and there are anywheres of the right. Um, anywheres of the left place a very high stress on, on social mobility, but often it's, it's, it's essentially saying, you know, everybody in society should be like me. Nick Clegg is saying everybody should be like me, and that's kind of logically impossible, thank God. Um, um, it, you see it in family life. Um, the overwhelming domination of the kind of in family policy has been about making women as autonomous as possible from men. It's, I mean, rather than finding ways for men and women to to, to live together in an in a egalitarian age, um, yeah, there's been a real downplaying of domesticity in in family policy. Something that is still very much you know it's all there in the opinion survey. Still very highly valued, particularly by uh, working-class women in Britain. Um, my argument, though, is that um, there is, um, in this reaction against anywhere domination of politics, um, 
there is, I think, a completely legitimate, it's a legitimate populism, if you like, it's a, um, I mean, I, I have a, I mean, many, if not most of the somewheres have what I described as a kind of decent populism. Um, and again, it's there in the data. I mean, you've seen a huge liberalisation in British society over the last 30 years. British social attitudes started in 1983. I mean, and since then, perhaps from a bit earlier, you've seen you know, radical declines in many forms of uh, prejudice and traditional uh, views and values. Um, whether we're talking about race, whether we're talking about sexuality, whether we're talking about gender, um, huge, huge um, liberalisation. But at the same time, certain that this hasn't applied to everything. Um, and in some other areas, you've seen um, greater um, tradition, uh, expressions of traditionalism or conservatism when it comes, say, to, to immigration. This partly because immigration has risen dramatically since mid-late 90s. Um, so I mean, people have always been hostile to large-scale immigration, but, but it was uh, relatively low down their list of anxieties. Uh, as the numbers have increased, so the anxieties increased. Um, so it, there's uh, and a continuing strong attachment to national identities, and therefore um, considerable hostility to um, European integration, as we've seen obviously through Brexit. Uh, other areas include welfare. If anything, people have become more concerned, more more hostile to um, to certain kinds of welfare spending. There's a great attachment to the idea of, of contribution, and uh, as uh, as our system has become less contributory, uh, so people have become more wary uh, of it. Um, so, uh, so w within the, I mean, I think there is this thing that one can call decent populism, which has accommodated much of the unaccepted much of the great liberalisation of the last 30 or 40 years, but um, has done so um, with, with greater reticence, you might say, than the, than the anywhere embrace. I mean, the anywheres have, have been, you know, liberal graduate anywheres have been leading uh, the charge, as it were, um, in many of these areas, but they've taken somewheres with them a lot of the time, but not all of the time. And modern populism is, I think, an expression of the fact that there is such a thing as society and a belief that the people that, that run our society um, have a very different view of, of uh, or have a, have, a, have a view of society which is much more open. I mean, we've, you will have heard of, uh, that people often talk about how left and right has now been eclipsed by the distinction between open and closed. I think this is an extremely self-serving way of looking at it from liberal anywheres. Um, nobody wants to live in a closed society. I mean, I've never met anybody who wants to live in a closed society. It's about how openness affects you, about different kinds of openness. And there are certain kinds of openness that, that as it were, benefit and play to the strengths and the values of, of anywhere people. And there are different kinds of openness. <coughs> Openness is that is perhaps a bit more closed, <laughs> um, that appeals more to somewhere people. Um, I think that's where we are now. Um, I mean, both of these worldviews and their subdivisions um, are perfectly legitimate, uh, and I think the great task of politics uh, for the next <laughs> generation is how to find a new settlement between the anywheres and the somewheres, um, which will essentially mean anywheres recognizing. Um, that the somewheres actually matter, and they have a point, and that people who see change as loss, um, are, you know, ha have a right to to believe that just as much as people who think that change is wonderful.
Thanks. Uh, Eric, um, David's talked, I think, about populism mainly, at least in this first cut, uh, around values, um, a distinction in different attachments to different kinds of social values. But I wanted to ask you if it's worthwhile thinking of varieties of populism at all. Is there a variety? And especially sociologically, I mean, it, it, do forms of organisation come into play here? Uh, do the political styles, are they a consideration? Is there a variation? I was saying earlier, uh, rather blithely, that you know there is no such thing as an English people, but you as, as a student of nationalism, um, you know, I can think of the Scottish people and even the Irish people. Um, is there a variation within these islands, let alone beyond? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I kind of wouldn't want to step back and, and take populism first, because populism and nationalism are not the same animals, even though there's quite a bit of overlap. So you have, for example, left-wing populism, focused a lot on class and economic issues, focused against an economic elite. So populism very much is a kind of Rousseauan general will concept referencing the people and popular sovereignty. Uh, and it's generally directed against an elite, uh, perhaps in league with foreign powers, but not necessarily. So with left-wing populism, we have opposition to an economic elite, such as bankers, for example, or um, some kind of a, a wealthy oligarchy, for example. Uh, Right-wing populism, there are different strands. So you can actually have religious populism. The Law and Justice Party in Poland, for example, with its appeal to Catholicism. Or even, even in the US with uh, the Christian coalition and, and some kind forms of popular Protestant politics, more religious. You can also have, of course, ethnic nationalism driving populism, which is, I think, where we are today in the West, that, that it's really about the ethnic majority defending its ethnic boundaries, um, and re hence resistance to immigration is absolutely central. But it's worth noting just that there have been these other strands of populism. In the US, for example, uh, both the John Birch Society and McCarthyism <coughs> are very much either militaristic forms of populism, or they were libertarian forms. So this idea somehow that the government is going to get your liberty, and that we have to protect that somehow. Liberty as expressed, it might be gun ownership, but it might be the Constitution. So there actually is a kind of liberal form of populism, or libertarian form. So it's worth just suggesting there are varieties of populism. Um, if you look at, at, at people like Seymour Martin Lipset and his work on populism, he, he makes a lot of he, he suggests that it can be defined uh, by an opposition to pluralism, whether that's any kind of pluralism, not necessarily cultural, but could be ideological pluralism and wanting society to think and breathe as an organism, as a, as a single whole. I'm not sure that's necessarily the best definition. I think, I think anti-elitism, absolutely, uh, but, but I'm not sure about this idea that it has to be anti-pluralist. So, yeah, I mean, that's just really a big overview. I think nationalism is, you could have elitist forms of nationalism, elite-led forms of nationalism. And even if I think of the Parti Québécois and Quebec nationalism, uh, I mean, there was a lot of trust put in the educated Québécois elite, PQ elite, in leading that. So I, don't, I think you could have nationalism, which is not necessarily populist. Um, so there are some subtle differences, but I do think what we're seeing now is very much an overlap, confluence of those two. Okay. Um, maybe we'll yeah. flesh those we'll things back, out a little. Absolutely. We'll come back to them. And I want to pick up on, on two terms, actually, elite and also reaction. Um, David, you were talking about the populism that we're witnessing in this country being 
and I'm assuming here we haven't named names yet, but I'm assuming we're talking about UKIP principally uh, and not uh, populism of the left, although, you know, maybe that will come in, um, as being reaction, a reaction. Um, so I want to bring Jason in and tie these two notions together. I mean, is there a, some mileage in thinking of populism in its ideological forms, especially from your political theoretical perspective, as being an anti movement. It's not defined by what it is, but what it's against. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thanks, Alex. Um, you said to me at the beginning, I hope it's not going to be another one of these panels where everybody agrees with each other. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm going to try and manufacture a uh, disagreement. I'm not going to manufacture it because I think sometimes I just disagree with some of what we've heard so far. And um, part of that is to do with the idea that populism is somehow rooted in social conditions. It is reflective of a social movement of a kind and that it's about a value a value shift or a an enduring value shift but maybe i'll come on to that later but um yes one face uh, there's a very good book i should say by jan Werner muller which is called what is populism which i'd recommend to you if you're interested in these things but one of the things that he says is that one face of populism is certainly its reactive face it is the idea um that it is against elites of various kinds a political elite an economic elite, an elite that we find in uh, culture and arts and in public life, uh, sorry, in academic life, in the universities and so on. Uh, and of course we get various proxies for these elites, the establishment, uh, the mainstream media is another, another big one. So there is, you know, this sense of anti-elitism, which is half the story of pluralism, but where I would disagree quite strongly with Eric is the sense that, you know, um, we can understand pluralism simply in terms of being anti-elitist. I do think that the other space of pluralism is its um, disagreement with plurality and with pluralism. Okay, so plurality understood as a variety of ways of life, of values, and so on, uh, but pluralism as a political system that seeks to work with and enhance those differences in order to develop a strong form of civil uh, public life and civil public uh, engagement. So this thing has got two faces. You can be against the elites or you can be critical of what the elites do, but not be a populist because you don't swallow the whole of the pill. Uh, and the other part of that is exactly um, this belief in the people, the populace, as something which is single, not plural but it is one thing. It is a people that is defined by traits that it has in, com has in common. Now, those can be all kinds of things. They can be, uh, uh, can be to do with national identity, ethnic identity, religious identity, uh, race, and so on, right? These are all ways of which we can define the people, or we can define the people as the common people, and so on. But they share something in common, uh, and what stands against them is the non-people. And the non-people are the elites, but importantly, also those people who are either facilitators of the elites um, or who are their willing dupes. Okay? And you can see this in the way that um, the very kind of spatial language of populism sets itself out. So I was reading a very interesting uh, defense of Trump in The Guardian a couple of weeks ago. And... Um, uh, very reasonable and, and quite persuasive in, in many respects. 
Um, I'm not. I'm not a supporter <laughs> of Donald Trump. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, you get uh, after the you know the sort of reasonable introduction that says you know people voted for Trump basically because they feel isolated and alienated and marginalised and let down by the elites. Uh, um, you then get the introduction of a variety of populist tropes that go on to say things like there is this divide between the uh, anywheres and the somewheres. And it is reflected in spatial terms, right? Where do the elites and their willing dupes live? Well, they live in the, this is the exact expression that the author used, the coastal enclaves of the United States of America, right? Right on the periphery, right on the outside. And where are the real Americans? Well, the real Americans are in the heartlands, they're in the Midwest, and, and they're in the South. Um, very tellingly, Nigel Farage, the day after the uh, after the referendum, uh, uh, having the night before predicted that, of course, the, uh, uh, that Remain was going to win, uh, came out in the morning and said, you know, well, uh, we've won. The real people of Britain have spoken. Okay? So there again, you have this um, simple division between the people and the non-people. The real people and everyone else, and everyone else, of course, uh, includes 48% of those who voted in the in the referendum to remain uh, are the non-people. So I think to have, for populism to have any kind of analytical value, you've got to take on board both of these things. It's not just being against the elite, um, it is also um, believing that there is a people and that the populist movement, so to speak, and populist leaders represent the people when in fact what they represent is only a fragment or a part of the people. Do you want to come back immediately on this, uh, David? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think um, that uh, it, it doesn't really correspond to what somebody like Nigel Farage thinks. Uh, I mean, yeah, you know, he talks about the real people. I mean, anywheres throw around the concept of bigot uh, the whole time. Um, I don't think you can really build a, a kind of philosophy. I, mean, I broadly agree with you. I mean, yes, I mean, populism, as defined in the textbooks, is about um, a belief in a homogeneous people uh, in opposition to an elite. Um, the trouble is most actual real living populists don't really believe that. Nigel Farage is a liberal, actually, in many respects. Um, you know, Nigel Farage and Nick Clegg both believe in the rule of law. They both, both believe in minority rights. They both believe in checks and balances on centralised power. I mean, you know, looked at historically, you know, they are both liberals. Um, <coughs> the fact that uh, Nigel Farage talks about um, talks about the real people is just, a, you know, this is just the, the land of political rhetoric. Um, he doesn't believe, you know, he, he, you know, until a few years ago, he was a libertarian. He doesn't believe in there being a homogeneous people um, with identical interests. He believes in a commonsensical way, you know, populists often refer to common sense, um, he believes in a commonsensical way about, about national citizen favouritism, say. This is not a particularly controversial idea, it's believed probably by 80% of the population, more even, uh, but is in complete contrast to the reality of freedom of movement, which says that you know, it, we, have, we have to uh, observe non-discrimination, we have to treat all 500 million members of the European Union said they're British citizens, in effect. And he rejects that, I think perfectly reasonably, actually, as to most, most British people. That doesn't mean to say he believes in a homogeneous people. Um, yeah. Somewhat counterintuitively, uh, 
you suggested that in this book you're arguing that um, populism hasn't really had that much of an effect, certainly in other parts of Europe where it's come to power already. Hmm. Yes, I mean, I think we enormously exaggerate the um, the actual impact of of populism. Um, so, I mean, even you know, Trump hasn't actually done anything. I mean, there's been a lot of rhetoric. You know, he tried to block people coming from uh, from seven Muslim countries. I mean, by this time, under Barack Obama, admittedly, there was a global financial crisis uh, in 2009. But when Barack Obama was first elected, he'd already passed some massive. Um, um, sort of Keynesian bill regenerating the US economy by several tens of billions of dollars and um, Donald Trump has basically done nothing um, but, but that's a sort of side issue in a way I mean in terms of I think the most successful act of European populism to date has been the Brexit vote actually has been um, you know, we thought we were immune to to to, to, Europe, to continental European European populism because of first past the post, and, and, and we were. Um, but then um, UKIP came along and sort of broke through even under first past the post to the extent that they were getting sort of 12, 14, 15 percent support in the opinion polls. That served as a threat to the Conservative Party. That led to the decision to have a referendum, um, and we know the result of the referendum. That I think has been. It's very hard to point to um, successful populist effects elsewhere in continental Europe, uh, although, as you know, uh, populist parties have participated in government in many places, um, in, in Finland, in Italy, in the Netherlands, albeit sort of indirectly. Uh, where else? Um, anyway, think but, Austria, I think. Yeah, Austria. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, Hungary and, and Poland are, are, are arguably populist uh, majority governments, um, and, and we, one can have an argument about whether they are uh, restricting uh, rights. Um, but I mean, essentially, you know, the, the open liberal society has 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 held in all these countries. Um, there has been no change to the European Union's policies, whether it's on the Euro, um, uh, you know, the refugee crisis in 2015-2016, uh, you know, the, the most important country in Europe said, you know, you're all welcome. Um, um, there was hostility, um, particularly in Eastern Europe, emerged sometime later. Immigration levels have not come down anywhere, uh, with the possible exception of Denmark. Um, but so I mean I think it's very it's very hard to, to argue that populists have yet had very much impact, um, and and the European Union didn't even um, deign to give David Cameron a decent deal that he could have sold to the British public, uh, which I think they may may now regret. Um, but um, yeah, I mean you know if, if populism is such a powerful surging tide in Europe, then uh, then I you know I'd like to see the evidence for it. Okay, I I want to bring in Eric because that's certainly one, and I'm sure um, there'll be audience participation in, in that aspect. That is one policy-oriented reading of the impact of, of populism. Uh, but another one might be sociologically thinking about race, racism. Uh, I mean, we've we talked about words like bigotry, uh, xenophobia hasn't been used, and you know, there's a distinction between those terms. But surely, uh, coming back to these islands as well. Uh, the idea of taking back control, uh, getting our country back, um, what many of us have actually perceived and some have lived as the license of 
a sort of, um, well, a genuine bigotry, a genuine racist uh, language and, and um, xenophobic kind of backlash against be it Poles or be it peoples of colour in this country. Um, is it is populism racist? And is there a distinction to be made between uh, xenophobia, the, the sense of trying to uh, balance the openness and closeness? Is there a spectrum between outright supremacism um, and the kind of uh, robust nationalism or whatever you want to call it um, that, that others represent? Yeah, good. Um, well, first of all, obviously populism, as I mentioned, could be a left-wing form and it could be about you know, libertarianism or religion. I think the form that we see right now in the West is primarily about ethnic nationalism and it is primarily about the ethnic majority uh, trying to defend ethnic boundaries. I would say. I mean, I would say that's number one issue. So I'd say in the Brexit vote, if you really look at the Brexit vote, immigration, absolutely the number one driver of the Leave vote. So uh, absolutely central. If you look at support for Trump, not whether you voted Republican or Democrat, but what you think of Trump on a 0 to 10 scale, for example, or whether you supported him in the primaries. Again, it's immigration issues that are coming up, number one, in differentiating your support or lack of support for Trump. So this is absolutely a critical question. And to my mind, the critical question is not necessarily what does it mean to be British or American in an age of ethnic transformation. It is what does it mean to be white British or white American in an age of ethnic transformation. In other words, what is the future for the ethnic majority in different Western countries? That is the real question. And it hasn't really been dealt with very much. Now, the issue of racism, bigotry, xenophobia. I, I do think we're going to have to have a conversation about this that's more open than we are. So for example, there was a piece in the Washington Post by Shadi Hamid, who's a very interesting uh, Muslim American writer based at the Brookings Institution, who said we have to distinguish between what he called racism, which is an irrational hatred or fear of a particular group or thinking you're superior to a particular group, and racial self-interest, which is the desire to, you know, it, it, to protect your group interest, to advance your group interest. And that could be on behalf of a majority group like white Americans or a minority such as Hispanic Americans. They're both the same impulse, which is in some way to defend the community and its ethnic boundaries. And here I think we have to open up a space for ethnic majorities to talk about their cultural self-interest. Doesn't mean we have to accede to all of those demands, but I think it would be better for that to be out in the open and then for us to say, okay, there's the ethnic majority, this is what its cultural self-interest is, which is going to be, generally, to reduce immigration, to reduce the cultural Im impact on its, itself. And then we've got other interests, and let's come to an accommodation between these interests. Right now, what's happening, I'm afraid, is that the nasty sort of racist stuff is being mi mishmashed in with the uh, group self-interest stuff. So. You know, when Trump, you know, Trump says something racist such as Mexicans are rapists or, you know, or, or Muslim, we want a Muslim ban. And these are clearly racist things because they're targeting particular minority groups, stigmatizing them. But then on the other hand, we have um, a, a concern over immigration, which is about slowing down the rate of change so that you don't get rapid cultural change. I think that's a perfectly valid argument to make, and people should not be accused of racism for making it. So I think we need to have a more open uh, debate. but. Still, you know, and that way the majority can maybe see, okay, there are different interests. Ours is one of them. It's legitimate for us to put the cultural interest out there, but we'll have to compromise because no group can totally get its way.
Okay. More concepts here. Um, majority, um, we're mentioning David earlier, common sense. You know, maybe I'm reading too much into these things, but there's a suggestion that things can be and should be made simple, um, that there are clearly defined people, that there is something called common sense, that there is a majority. Um, one of the other terms that's come up, and I want to bring Jason in here, is, is the idea of the Constitution um, and of mediating institutions that mediate between the people and uh, government. Is there a possibility of um, a populist constitutionalism? What's the relationship between populists and the broad uh, infrastructure that we might call uh, the Constitution? Well, um, I mean, populists are ambiguous about constitutions because in one sense, if you accept this idea, and I take David's point before about you, know, you can have textbook definitions of populism, but I think these are rather kind of ideal types <coughs> than have all kinds of effects on, on the, the mm. performative rhetoric of, of these populist movements. And, and this relates to the area of, of the Constitution. So on the one hand, if you believe that the basis of law uh, is the, the will of the people, um, and that you are the genuine voice of the people, then a constitution which is understood as something which provides for a series of rules that interfere with the will of the people is something that we need to oppose. Right? Um, because those rules act in the favour of, of elites. So you can see you know, where, where you see uh, populists or semi-populist, whatever you want to call them, come into power. You've seen it, uh, you see it in Latin America, uh, but you also saw it in, in Poland and uh, in Hungary with, with Viktor Orban and Fidesz, um, is uh, the initial kind of criticism of judges, right? Judges who decide on the constitution and public law, you know, um, the enemy of the people, as the Daily Mail um, put it. Um, and then you see the gradual introduction um, of constitutional reforms which are designed to centralise power and cement it in the hands of the, of the, of the leading party. So uh, I think that in, uh, am I getting hungry in Poland mixed up? I don't think I am. I think in, in Hungary, uh, you know, Orban introduced a, uh, a constitutional amendment which much reduced the size of parliament uh, and effectively gerrymandered the electoral constituencies so that his party would get a supermajority and they could therefore bring about further constitutional change. So this is a, a populist tactic that you see in many countries. Um, Erdogan in Turkey is, is doing something very similar at the moment. It is um, saying that the constitution as it stands doesn't stand for the people, it stands for the arts. <coughs> therefore we must rewrite the constitution so that it represents uh, the will of the people um, and is not used as a device uh, by by the elites to protect their their interests. Um, so, uh, I mean, you can you can see this as part of a series of measures that populists use to try and cement um, their authority. Now, none of them, so far as I see it, um, have ripped up constitutions and said we will rule arbitrarily. Right. It's not just the personal will of the leader that counts. You know, this is not sort of Nazism yet. Right? Um, 
it is the acknowledgement that there has to be some limitations on, on centralised power, but nonetheless the general direction of traffic is to undermine what we might think of as uh, central features of, of democracy. Okay, so it's to close down dissent and, and opposition. Uh, to gerrymander elections, this is something I think that, that, that Trump has already signalled that he's preparing to do uh, for, the, for the next presidential election um, by, uh, you know, restricting or encouraging the restriction of the votes for, for uh, Hispanic and, and black Americans. Uh, to bypass effective parliamentary scrutiny uh, and to rule increasingly by, by decree. These are general trends that we can see across the board. So, I mean, I would agree with, with David that, you know, the world hasn't been turned upside down by these people yet, but I think we see the beginning of a path towards a much more authoritarian and anti-democratic form of politics. And the, the real problem is when populist tropes and populist uh, strategies for governance come to be adopted, right, by parties and movements which are not ostensibly populist as it stands, because they don't take on board this idea that we are one homogenous people and we have to exclude the non-people. That, that is the threat that populism um, poses, and it poses, is, poses it at this level of uh, the understanding of the rule of law. Now, I, again, I take David's point, Nigel Farage would defend the rule of law, but I think he would defend the rule of law in a quite different way to other liberals, okay? Um, I mean, I've heard him talking about, you know, the desirability of plebiscitary democracy over parliamentary <laughs> sovereignty, right? And again, you get a conception of law as something which is a vehicle for the identity of the people, right? Not the rule of law as a set of mechanisms which are designed to constrain the power, the absolute power of government, and to provide rights for individuals and associations against the power of, of central government. So there isn't one conception of the rule of law. Actually, there are many different conceptions of the rule of law. Um, I would disagree with kind of Marxist critical theorists who say the rule of law is simply a vehicle for the interest of the bourgeoisie. You can have quite radical conceptions of the rule of law and of what constitutionalism is about, but populism's understanding of it takes us in the direction of authoritarianism and the undermining of democracy. Okay, I want to uh, close this part of the, of the session by asking David um, a, a final question before we open things up, uh, and that is to return to the idea of new settlement. This is slightly improvised on the back of what Jason's just been saying, because it strikes me that certainly outside of Europe, populism has been quite revolutionary, quite transformative. One thinks of Chavez most recently, but the whole Latin American tradition or the whole post-colonial traditions of populist movements and parties, Indonesia, um, and, and, and in the Middle East and elsewhere. And I do wonder if, in, in, in their own paradoxical way, the, the Conservative government now faces a moment of constitutional change. You know, Theresa May um, hanging out with the House, at the House of Lords in a, it appears, relatively threatening manner. Uh, the talk of, um, uh, of you know, the, the, the role of Parliament or otherwise in Brexit... Um, I think very importantly, especially given that you and Eric are here, the, the, the United Kingdom or the disunited kingdom, you know, what happens when, uh, when the United Kingdom or Britain has a, um, a border with, with the European Union? Um, the, the all kinds of 
constitutional challenges that paradoxically might need to a more radical new settlement. Is that the kind of thing that you were considering, David, when, when you were talking about a new settlement between the open, between the anyways and the somewheres? Yeah, I mean, I think it will throw up a lot of um, a lot of exciting and unexpected things. Um, and um, uh, I mean, most most parties are populist in their origins, um, with the possible exception of the Conservative Party, which seemed to sort of evolve over millennia. Um, um, I mean, the Labour Party was certainly populist. Both the both the American main American parties were probably populist. Um, uh, I mean, I would st I would still say that there is a though a kind of core. Um, there is a tension between the two terms when we talk about liberalism and democracy. Um, I mean, most of the time it doesn't arise in liberal democracies, but there are certain issues where it does arise. Um, there are certain times when it arises, and um, and I would um, you know the. the the kind of alternative version of your story is precisely that um, huge amounts of um, policy areas have been removed from from the from democratic competition uh, over the last few years, e even in Britain. Um, uh, you know, which which has tended to be a, a you know parliamentary sovereigntist um, policy, um, but the, the kind of technocratic creep. You've had judicial creep. Uh, you've had much more judicial activism. You've had, you know, human rights legislation. You've had, you know, the independence of the Bank of England, you know, which then introduces a policy called quantitative easing, which is massively in the interests of people who already own assets. I mean, the highly political things that uh, that institutions are doing, um, and I think it's perfectly legitimate for somebody like Farage um, to come along and say. These things should be back in the, the field of, of um, democratic competition. I mean, it used to be the left that complained about the power of judges when they struck down something Arthur Scargill had done uh, 20 or 30 years ago. Um, um, you know, now it tends to be anywhere liberals who, who are on the side of the judges. You know, against the 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 the, 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 the fearful masses. Um, and um, uh, again, I would say, I mean, I think. You know, the average populist voter, or the the average person that I described as a as a kind of as a somewhere, not all somewheres vote for populist parties. I think not all not all people who vote for populist parties are even really populist. You often, you, you vote to act as a kind of constraint on uh, on the excessive power of this value group who have dominated our politics for a generation or more. Um, and I think most most of the people I call decent populists still believe in 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 individual rights. They believe in minority rights. Um, they're suspicious of power. They don't worship power. Um, I mean, some some of the weirdos at the fringes of um, extreme parties may worship power, but uh, you know your average your average British person who might think about voting for UKIP or, or voting for a populist party. You know, is is, um, is suspicious of power, I'd say, um, and, and perfectly comfortable with minority rights. And um, yes, I mean, as, as as Eric was saying, I think um, feels that you know has some sort of vague sense that, that society has changed too fast, and they would like to slow that down. That that uh, that there is such a thing as society, and if it and if it's changing too fast, then 
you can't have the kind of stability and continuity that any kind of community, both small and big, requires to be a real community. Um, and I think um, they have not found, you know, a, a lot of these intuitions they have not seen expressed in any of the main three parties for the last 15 years. Um, and, you know, and hence, um, hence the rise of UKIP and hence Brexit. Okay, and, I, and, and, you know, and, and that's, you know, perfectly accommodatable in our, in our admittedly very flexible constitutional tradition. Thanks very much. So I'm going to take, the panel don't mind, two or three questions in one go. Just raise your hand, catch my eye. Uh, if you could say who you are, if there is a reason for an affiliation, do so. Keep your questions or comments as brief as possible. And also, if they're directed to any specific member of the panel, please please do so. So, the gentleman, one, yeah, yourself, two, and three, yeah. Uh, this is a question for Mr. Goodhart. Uh, you said earlier that this new form of populism is what you term decent populism. Uh, you stated that we now live in a society which is more liberal and tolerant towards others, including minority groups. However, since uh, the referendum result, um, it sort of legitimised a lot of violence, bigotry and xenophobia towards especially communities such as the Jewish community, the Muslim community and, and indeed Eastern European communities. What would you therefore say about that? Thanks. So, my name is Lukas. I'm studying here to obtain Masters in International Security and Global Governance. And I've got a question to um, a little bit about kind of forecasting. So, and to all panelists, but uh, particularly to Eric in terms of politics of identity. So, we talk about this populism because of the uh, referendum and Trump and win and potential wins in uh, upcoming elections in other countries. Um, but my question is, you know, it, it is very likely that these votes will not deliver on their promises. So they can slow a little bit change, cultural change, and it will make feel better this electorate, which uh, voted for um, these campaigns, for these, these promises. Uh, but as I said, it is uh, also very likely that it will not deliver due to the, you know, other consequences in terms of economic <coughs> policies and so forth and so forth. So my question is, what is the forecast for this electorate? Where, where this electorate will go and whether there is no risk of further radicalization of this electorate if, you know, uh, the expectations will not be met? Great, thanks. Uh, yes. My name's Alistair. I'm a, a friend of students here, and a student myself. Um, really simply for all panelists, there's been so much fluidity with populism, which we're trying to address. But it seems that sometimes, even in all your responses, it's been a natural resource. Populism is there. Politicians draw on it or use it. And other times, politicians are conjuring it, creating it, defining it. I would just be interested in some of your point of views about populism as a thing politicians do, and populism as a thing that exists. Excellent. Thanks very much. So, Eric, do you mind? Sure. I mean, I'll just off. have a stab at these. Uh, um, you know, a great question. Um, what happens if they don't deliver? I mean, the one thing, the first thing to mention, of course, is that uh, populist parties in the West have been increasing their vote share substantially. 
Uh, and this is especially so since the migrant crisis. The economic crisis had almost no effect. It had zero effect, essentially, overall. The migrant crisis had a mad, massive effect. So we do see a significant rise in, the, in their presence. But you're right. They are very unlikely to deliver. They, however, might put pressure on governments. In fact, we've seen that when they've entered coalition. So they may, you know, tight immigration. There'll be pressure to reduce immigration. There'll be pressure, certainly, not to, to, to have a multicultural rhetoric. So I think in those ways, populists will influence the, uh, the policy process. Now, but you ask a very good question about longer term. Will there be a radicalization? And that is one of the great big questions which we don't know. I mean, there could be those who say, you know, we're still changing, we still got immigration. Yes, it's a bit slower, but we're still losing our identity and could go radical. I don't discount that as a possibility. I think that's it, that it, already we're seeing the far right uh, accounting for more violence than mm. political Islam in most countries. In terms of violent incidents, actually they're a bigger threat. So that is a possibility. I, I wouldn't want to discount that. Um, second question really was on uh, populism. I mean, I really think this is demand-driven rather than supply-driven. That is, if you look in this country, for example, you can see that net, as net migration numbers are going up, the concerns expressed MPs in their post bags, the Ipsos Mori issues index, all of those indices are rising. So it was well, it was rising well before Farage or entered the scene. So I really don't think those populists have really manufactured or done a lot of uh, supply-driven stuff that's, that's created a lot of it. I think it's largely demand-driven. Um, on, on the um, hate crime uh, issue, I I don't think that um, is, that, and there clearly was a spike after June the 23rd, but I don't think that um, is incompatible with the, the you know, mainstream Britain continuing to become more liberal in many ways. Um, and I think, you know, if you look at the if you look at the value surveys, you look at you know measurements of racial antipathy. You know, do you, would you mind having a a black boss, or would you mind if your daughter married uh, a non-white person? If you're white, um, you know, the, all these numbers continue to go down. Um, the fact that there was um, a a relatively brief spike, well, it lasted four or five weeks, I think, and the numbers then went back down to the kind of normal level. Um, yeah, is the fact that a, you know a small number of people felt emboldened by the vote. Um, they overwhelmingly indulged in very unpleasant personal abuse of um, you know, mainly of people from Eastern Europe. I mean, there, there was some spillover, some increase in abuse of um, you know, visible others, Muslims, I think, particularly. Um, there, there are a small number of very bigoted people in Britain, um, probably rather fewer than there were 50 years ago, but, but you know, I think there is a kind of irreducible core of bigotry, and you know, unfortunately one of the malign effects of, uh, of the great sort of internet social media revolution is that it does give the kind of, you know, the, the, the troll bigot, um, uh, you know, a, a much more powerful weapon than they've, than they've had in the past. And, um, that is a that is an unfortunate side effect of, of this of this of the communications revolution, but I don't think one should. Uh, uh, I mean, the whole the whole subject of hate crimes is 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 interesting, and um, 
we have a, we're, we have we're in the peculiar position of having a government that actually is encouraging the numbers to rise. I mean, for good liberal reasons, um, that they think that it's um, they think that it's reassuring to religious or ethnic minorities to see the numbers rising, or rather to see the numbers um, to see the gap between the hate crime figures that emerge from the crime survey, um, which is the as you probably know, t tends to be a much more reliable uh, source of data about uh, criminal activity in the country because actual recorded crime is so subject to, to political changes and you know, um, police incentives and so on and so forth. Um, that the crime, and, the, and in the crime survey, hate crime uh, runs at about 200,000 incidents a year. Um, and uh, although the numbers have been going up quite fast in recent years, um, hate crime incidents run at about 62,000 at the moment. And, you know, you go and talk to the people that, uh, you know, in, in the metropolitan police, and they want the numbers to rise. I mean, it's sort of slightly peculiar in a way, but they do actually want the numbers to rise. I'm not, I'm not quite sure they're right that this is reassuring. Um, rather, I think there's a sort of disjunction between the... Um, is, it, is it an example of the fallacy of composition that... that it's enormously reassuring if you're a young Muslim woman and someone has just abused you or torn your hijab off or whatever, to be able to go to a police station, to be taken seriously, um, and you know for that, to, and for the incident to be not only recorded but pursued if, the, if it happened to be near a CCTV camera, um, and you know, and that may well not have been the case 20 years ago or 25 years ago. So that is a, a huge step forward. Whether it's also reassuring to have all these. You know, have all the numbers aggregated, and and the government gives money to organisations, who, whose function is partly to push the numbers up. Uh, whether it is reassuring to see the numbers going up, fifteen percent a year or whatever it is. Anyway, so this is a bit of a um, hobby horse of mine, but um, it's, a, it's a it's a it's a fascinating and important. But I don't think that the, the brief spike does not contradict the kind of liberal Britain story. Jason, do you want to? Do the tapping the last, into populism. The last question, the third one, yeah. 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 Um, so, yeah, I, I agree with Eric to an extent that this is demand-driven, but, but I do wonder about the nature of that, that demand. And this is where I would question the idea that it is a product of some fundamental value shift that we've seen over the course of, of, of recent, recent times. I mean, I, I think David's absolutely right when you point to the, the liberalisation of our societies in, in, in many respects. Gay marriage, I forgot to mention, actually, yeah. is another yeah. example. Sure. I mean, you know, I mean, 20 years ago, it would have been unthinkable. Yeah, so I think, I think that's right. So what is, what is the demand about? And I think the demand um, is for anti-elitism. Right? It's, a, it's a feeling of dismay with the way that political and economic and cultural elites, elites have behaved in the, in the era of, of neoliberalism. I think that's what it's about. Um, and it's been exploited. I think it's been exploited by uh, some very clever people uh, who are uh, <coughs> on the coattails of some very ideological people. I mean, I think... Trump is fascinating in the sense that, you know, this, this guy doesn't know what he thinks most of the time, right? But Steve Bannon knows exactly mm -hmm. what, what he thinks. So you have the ideologues 
you have the people who are along for the ride and because you know they want to be even more famous and powerful and, and, and rich and that forges something that looks like I hesitate to call it a political movement because uh, I might if we still got time come on to that but it, it looks like something like a political movement that exploits those conjunctural conditions of a deep dismay and alienation from the elite and from uh, the system of government that people have but I think these attitudes are you know Brexit, I don't think, is about a populist time. I don't even think the election of Trump is about, you know, an overwhelming populist tide in, in America. Okay, it's very interesting empirical research in, in political studies uh, that's just come out uh, uh, by um, uh, Colin Hay and uh, Jerry Stoker. And um, it focuses on, on Britain. And they do the empirical work, they ask people the questions, and what they, what they discovered is what we'd expect, is that there is a, a great deal more sympathy for what we might think of as populist positions, they call it stealth populism, uh, now than there was uh, 20 years ago. Okay. So, but the appeal is it's anti-elitism. And um, when they ask the same people about their attitudes towards democracy, their beliefs in things like the importance of the accountability of the elites to, to people, right? um, you know, the importance of um, a form of politics which is open and honest and trustworthy and about deliberation and negotiation, these kind of central features of what we think of as democracy are um, quite strongly supported by significant numbers of people in, in this country. And they support them in a much more strong way than they do the attractions, the conjunctural attractions of anti-elitism. Anti now, and I think in a way we can be sort of then slightly optimistic about the possibility for at least something which takes on the elites, but which is non-populist in character. And that would be some kind of broad-based reform movement that says, well, you know, if we can't have direct participatory uh, politics, at least what we can have um, are elites who are held to account uh, much more effectively than they are in the present. We can have a more open kind of politics and we can do away with the terrible incivility that is promoted by a form of politics which is conducted mainly through Twitter. Right? Um, and perhaps regain some respect for, um, you know, it's not the mainstream media, but for an independent media that plays a role, uh, as many journalists do very well, in holding, holding government and other elites to, to account. And that sounds very much like what used to be called social democracy. Uh, <laughs> okay, um, this gentlemen here. I'm hoping that we might get a range of genders. Yes, uh, uh, two, one, yeah, no, no, I've got one and one here. And I'll, I'll, I'll make sure we get to this. Yes, sir, yeah. My name's Colin Hyde. I've just written a book called Progressive Protectionism. And what we haven't heard very much about this evening, we've heard a lot about managed migration. I think it's very interesting, with particularly Trump and Le Pen, where they're now talking about managing the flow of goods, managing the flow of capital, managing the flow of relocation, quite left-wing, really. Um, so I wondered what the panel thought should be the response of the anywhere central parties who have been caught completely on the hop, not only by the migration issue, but the protectionism issue. Thanks. Thanks very much. Yeah. Um, tying in a little bit with what the gentleman just asked, um, the focus so far in this debate has been, I think, primarily on what Eric called ethnic nationalist populism. You mentioned in passing left-wing populism, 
And Alex mentioned Latin America as an example of uh, more revolutionary kind of populist movements. Um, I attended a, a Guardian-sponsored event a couple of weeks ago called An Unorthodox Brexit. And one of the speakers was Yanis Varoudakis, who was the former Greek finance minister. And he stated that uh, the left cannot be populist. Um, it wasn't clear to me whether he meant by that that it's impossible for the left to be populist or whether he was uh, thinking the left couldn't afford to be popular, but it wouldn't be a good idea. I was wondering whether the panel members had any views mm. on the left <coughs> Thanks. Uh, my name's David. I'm in the final year of uh, Global Politics and International Relations BA. Um, and we kind of, you've briefly touched on um, the mainstream media and elites, and I kind of wanted to, to have a question about fake news. Uh, in regards to so, like CNN, for example, are uh, purveyors of fake news. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to ask, how do mainstream politicians um, or even society deal with a situation where some voters don't believe true facts but do believe falsehoods? And do alternative facts feed populism or does populism feed fake news? Okay. Do you mind if I take a couple more? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm keeping Absolutely. a note. Um, okay, Kieran and Leah. Yeah. Yeah, Go ahead, um, yeah. I'm Kieran, I'm doing the EMRES uh, here at Birkbeck. My question's for Eric. Um, Eric, you made it quite clear that you believe the uh, prime mover of a kind of recent populism has been a sort of ethnic grouping together. Um, I was wondering if I could ask you to kind of delve into the cause, underlying the cause, so to speak. Uh, that is to say, um, do you locate the reason for that in a kind of more primordialist group recognition, cognitive explanation? Or is it more something along the lines of what Ernest Gellner referred to as uh, social facts? That is to say, these things are instrumentalised, but once they exist, they gain a momentum of their own that's pretty difficult to extirpate. Thanks very much. I'll take one more for this round, but um, there's time for, for more. Yeah. Uh, my name's Lucy. I'm also doing uh, a Master's in Social and Political Theory. Uh, some politicians have used immigrants as scapegoats for economic and political ills. So how do you think austerity and the precariat has shaped the nature of populism? Okay. Now, would it be possible to divide labour a little bit on these five questions um, so that we don't all have to? David, I suspect you may have something to say about protectionism. Um, okay, I, I'll, I'll go first. I mean... Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it is a very, it's a good example, protectionism, or rather free trade as a kind of untouchable um, part of the sort of, you know, the, the double liberalism that I talked about. I mean, had been absolutely entrenched, I think, in across Europe and uh, North America, indeed, across the whole rich world, really. Um, and the WTO, uh, I mean, the kind of movement from the sort of first stage of post-war globalisation um, represented by GATT, and then this, and then the movement towards the much, much greater openness of the WTO. I think is is one of the reasons for the for the populist backlash because the WTO, rather like the, you know, and the European Union, require much more interference in national sovereignty. And uh, and you know we haven't found a better way than nation states of of expressing um, of expressing human preferences. And and countries differ enormously over their 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 appetite for risk uh, in in the financial sphere or GM crops and things like that. Um, 
So I, I think you're right. I'd, I'd be interested in reading your book um, that um, the the protectionism is. Um, uh, I mean, we're not going to move. I hope we don't move into a, into a protectionist world. Um, clearly, um, trade is also enormously wealth producing, but I think we are going to have to. Um, I think we're going to have to adjust. Uh, I think the the, the, WA, the WTO, um, you know, it's people like Danny Roderick, who I'm sure you know, you know, have written about the, the sort of excesses of the WTO liberalisation. And um, um, uh, he he came up, I thought, with a rather rather attractive formula that that any country should be able to kind of resist the international regulations so long as there was you know a clear majority for. A particular national way of doing things, um, and um, that would have to have majority support. So you wouldn't be able to. Um, countries would not um, be, uh, you know, in hoc to particular narrow uh, economic or trade interests. But yeah, I mean, how? I mean, uh, you know, this is this is also a, um, um, a, a a very delicate balancing act. I mean, as soon as you start unraveling the existing. Um, world trade system, you know, could the whole thing unravel? I, I, I don't think so. Um, I mean, that's what a lot of people will will say. Um, but um, I think we, you know, we, we need to think about. I mean, you know, we we're going to have this. We're going to reclaim sovereignty in the European Union. It means that we can, um, you know, declining industries can be supported by the state in certain areas in a way that has been illegal under. Uh, European Union competition rules. Now, I mean, we we are we're likely to have, and any conceivable British government in the next um, several years is likely to be relatively pro-market and liberal. So they're not going to want to start, you know, picking winners as we did in the 1970s and massively subsidising the coal industry or the steel industry or whatever. But it allows for some for some transitional subsidy of um, of industries that are. That are suffering. Um, so I think I, I think um, I think some readjustment is a good thing. When on the uh, just very briefly on, I mean obviously there is left populism. Um, um, you know, in the same way that sort of right populism um, places the people, that, you know, at the, at the you know at the altar. Um, left populism places the working class at the altar. Um, um, I think well, one of the curious things that has happened is that populism, I mean, Trump is a wonderful example of how things that we used to associate with the left, um, like identity politics, you know, Trump, it, it, it is said that Trump, I mean, Eric has written about this, uh, Trump has, um, has produced a kind of majority identity politics. Um, you know, he's, he's created um, a kind of white identity politics in America. Um, it's sort of taking taking an idea from the left and turning it against it in some ways. Uh, you might say the whole. I mean, who you can't imagine really a more postmodern president. Than, than <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, you know, he, you know, uh, it, you know, postmodernism, which was sort of an idea from the kind of academic intellectual left, um, the idea that there is no objective reality, there is no truth. You know, it's just all about power. Um, well, you know, um, you know, um, you got what you didn't necessarily want. But um. okay, I mean, the precariat um, oh, yeah, was well. was there in implicit. I think 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, I do. I mean, the one point I'd make about that is I do, I do think some of the, some of the popular. I mean, I, I I agree with Eric that much much of the kind of force, the emotional and psychological force behind populism is a, is more of a cultural than an economic thing. But I do think, you know, the the delayed reaction to the financial crisis um, throughout the developed world, um, throughout Europe and America, you know, has been one of the factors behind what's happened. I mean, it, and I think you I think you often see this with. Uh, with financial um, crises, that the, the immediate reaction is to, um, you know, is, is to kind of retreat and to be fearful and, if anything, you know, to vote for more conservative parties. But then, um, you know, the, the kind of the, the um, disaffection with uh, with with the, the economic status quo, and particularly the fact that, uh, you know. You know, since 2008, we haven't, um, you know, we bailed out the bankers, um, uh, you know, and the, the city trundled on, you know, the bonuses was, were perhaps not back to their pre-2008 levels, but they were doing pretty well in 2011, 2012 already. Uh, we subsequently had quantitative easing, you know, hugely beneficial for, for those people with assets. Um, and, I, I know, and, and, you know, even if you don't understand the technical details of quantitative easing, you sort of get the impression that the you know that the burden hasn't necessarily been equally shared whether you're kind of right or left I think there is a feeling that uh, you know that the people that run our society have not done very well on this one you know like they didn't do very well on the Iraq war you know there, there are a whole lot of things in the last 10 or 15 years where elites can quite reasonably be said to have um, mucked things up Primordialism. Yes, uh, nice to have a question on nationalism. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I don't think what's going on is primordialism. If we're if we, talking about the ethnic nationalism, I think it's more, I would naturally be more of a Smithian, so I would sort of see it, I mean, social fact in the Durkheim sense, I agree, that is that it's to do with cultural myths, memories, symbols, ideas of, you know, ideas which are fundamentally cultural rather than biological or, ev or evolutionary psychology. So I think it's really about uh, an inherited cultural template, um, which is how people see their national identity and they're seeing, if they see society deviating from that, that is what is sort of stimulating that sense of ethnic nationalism. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a way of, in a way, protecting ethnic boundaries. So that's how I would see it, not as primordial, but as more cultural historical. Uh, Smithy, if you like. Um, the, 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 I'll only just say something brief on the, the left wing. I mean, I do think that if we are going to make a point about uh, the importance of the economic crisis or the economy, then we have to explain why that's not turning up in the survey data, in, in any of the data. I mean, it really is striking to me how unimportant inequality is to those who are voting Brexit, voting Trump, for example, as an issue. Uh, income level is just not a predictor. It is a little bit of a predictor for Brexit. It is just not a predictor. Even if you just take white Americans, rich versus poor doesn't tell you anything about whether someone votes or supports Trump or not. Um, so I really don't think that we can look to, uh, you know, and again, if you look at the timing of the rise of support for European radical right parties, spikes upwards with the migration crisis. It doesn't do anything uh, during the economic crisis. Similarly with views on immigration. The, uh, concern over immigration comes up during the migration crisis. Nothing happens during the economic crisis. So again, now of course we do see a rise of left-wing populism in some places. Sanders 
and we see in Syriza and we see some other examples. So I'm not saying there's no left-wing populism, but the real question that we're all trying to explain really is right-wing populism. So why is it right-wing and not left-wing populism that seems to be making the, the running? And this is where I come back to this question of you know, this cultural change ethnic boundary question, which I think really is the key. Um, sorry, I'll shut up. Jason, do you, do you want to say something about the left or fake news or, or anything else? Uh, or the precariat. Or, or the precariat, yeah. <laughs> I'll try and say something about all of them. Um, so, I mean, I don't know what Varoufakis <coughs> said. I'm not naturally drawn to, to agree with, <laughs> with things he says. But, um, but I take the point to an extent. Um, you know, if you, I mean, if you look at Siritza, yeah, you know, it, it hasn't done what sort of the left populists in Latin America have done, right? Which, on the, you know, is much lauded by European, uh, the European left in, in some respects, because, you know, Chavez and uh, Correa and uh, uh, Morales, I mean, they, you know, Kirchner, I mean, they, they stood up against the domestic elites and the global elites, they stood up against the, the IMF, um, and they did for a time make a, a significant difference to the lives of, of people in, in their countries. But, um, of course, something came with that, which was corruption, uh, which was, again, a kind of closing down of, of opposition and dissent, uh, and, you know, kind of a, a few sort of pretty dodgy cults of personality. I mean, you know, Chavez used to go on the of his own music program <laughs> for, for hours, yeah. uh, which is, you know, which he took from Castro, of course. I mean, that's where that kind of personality came from. So, uh, you know, that, that's not something really I think the left should be uh, excusing and certainly not promoting. Um, and Syriza don't, and Podemos don't, even though they, you know, they've got some sympathies for Chavismo. Um, but it's the kind of perverse outcomes that I think you see when you adopt this populist way of thinking, right? I mean, what, what did Syriza have to do to form a government when it won the elections in, uh, was it 2015? Mm. 2015, 2016, I can't remember. Um, it went into coalition with a party of the conservative nationalist populist right, right? Uh, and a, a party which is strongly anti-immigration. Okay, and it's had to make concessions to them. So, you know, there's a kind of perversity when you say we're against the elites, we're only going to go into power with people who also represent the people, but then they represent a very different kind of people <coughs> the people that, uh, that these kind of left-wing populists consider themselves as representing. But the, I mean, the bigger danger, again, I would, would stress, and it's something that people on the left should, I think, um, support, uh, is that that kind of populism is against plurality and pluralism. Uh, and I think uh, uh, a kind of, the left is going to have any chance of um, getting through its current crisis. Um, it cannot adopt the garments of populism. It has to go back to that defense of ideas of, of pluralism. And, and the building, I think, of, of social coalitions for um, political and social reform. Um, what were the other two? The Actually, I'm going to interrupt you there because I know there's some people want to uh, ask questions and David has to leave at 7.30. So we're going to do an experiment. 
<laughs> but it really is, I'm going to have to cut it off at 7.30 and ask three people to give a one-sentence question. Uh, and then I'm going to ask the panellists to give a one-sentence answer. And we will be slightly more lenient with you, but we have to finish at 7.30. So, yeah, gentleman here, lady there, and the gentleman right at the end. And we can continue the conversation upstairs. So, yes, one sentence. <laughs> Broadly speaking, with the populism there is now, a lot of people are unsettled with it. Is it here to stay, or is this the new political norm as such, with political override and changing the blueprints constitutionally? Thank or you. Or are we going to see a change? Two sentences. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> if we look at populism as uh, anti-elitism, uh, uh, is it really something to do with the lack of social mobility, or not? maybe no growth in social mobility? Because if people from somewhere new and all, a lot more people from anywhere, it might be easier to talk instead of just putting yourself into two different opposite people. Thank you. And right at the back, yeah. Yeah, David, you said that um, populism in the UK has been put Labour in the left house business, or it is. How should the left respond? Great. Thank you very much for your discipline in that. So, is it here to stay, social mobility, and um, I can't read my writing here, but the last one. Um, how left respond? Yeah, how should the left <laughs> respond? Um, David, do you want to... Um, is it here to stay? I think Three that depends, sentences, yeah. um, it depends very much on the, um, on the reaction of the, um, the carriers of the double liberalism, as it were. Uh, and I think you're seeing a very interesting reaction both in America and here, I think you're seeing, you're seeing, uh, you know, the anywheres, the metropolitan liberal elite, whatever you want to call them, sort of um, <coughs> dividing politically. Uh, some people um, digging in, saying this is, you know, this kind of barbaric politics. We can't possibly concede anything. And a lot of people are saying, actually, um, perhaps we should rethink. You know, there clearly is, whatever one thinks. I mean, maybe that neither <coughs> Trump nor Farage have any answers. But they have been very effective at of giving expression to much greater alienation with the current system than we imagined was the case. Um, we need to, you know, we're getting we're getting signals from the from the democratic system, and we should respond to those signals. Uh, I think if that if that if that side of liberalism wins the argument, uh, then I think there will be a, a you know there will be a new settlement, um, and uh, we will have. You know, we will have more protectionism. Not, you know, we won't become a protectionist society. We won't jump free trade, but we will have lower levels of, lower levels of immigration. We will be a, uh, you know, we'll still be a, a very open society by historical standards and by, by by international comparison. Now, we'll be a little bit less open than we are now, and we will be worrying a lot more. This re relates to the social mobility question about the people in the bottom 50%, because I do think, I mean, you know, e even the left wing anywheres have, um, you know, certainly when it comes to education policy, you know, that we put all our eggs into the expansion of higher education. And that, you know, social mobility was about, uh, you know, getting decent A-levels. Well, we've had a much more ruthless system than the 11 plus was. If you didn't get, you know, if you didn't stay on at school and get decent A-levels, you know, for the last 15 years or so, you know, your lot has really been a lot less good than it would have been 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, and if you, didn't, if you didn't make it through that relatively narrow channel or, or expand it or widening channel, admittedly, uh, you know, we now have 45% of the cohort going to, into higher education. 
although a lot of it is not as good as it is at Birkbeck or uh, <laughs> at, at Russell Group universities. Um, <laughs> you know, we are. Um, you know, we have we have not been thinking, uh, or the elites have not really have not been thinking about the the economic outcomes for, and they just prattled on about social mobility, which has meant one thing: going to Russell Group University and becoming like Nick Clegg. Um, and, um, and that uh, you know, and that isn't good enough. And lots of people don't want to be mobile. They want to have a decent life. They want to have a, a job, uh, you know, that is honoured and respected, uh, you know, in Stoke. Um, and um, yeah, um, what 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 the left does? I mean, um, I, I think it's. I mean, I honestly think it's it's too late, at least for the Labour Party. I mean, I think you know, this the anywhere somewhere division has 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 driven right down the middle of most of the centre-left parties in Europe. Uh, I mean, in continental Europe, they're far more advanced states of decay. The Dutch Labour Party only now gets 8 or 9% in the polls. I mean, it's worse, it's worse in certain parts of continental Europe, precisely because of um, PR, because they get eaten on, on both sides. So, you know, the Dutch Labour Party has lost a lot of its working-class vote to get builders. Uh, in Rotterdam and places like that. On the other hand, it loses lots of the, the student, you know, the kind of Guardian reading equivalents in, in the Netherlands to, to small leftist parties, green parties, feminist parties, and so on. Um, but, you know, the, 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 the centre-left, um, because it's been taken over by anywhere uh, socio-cultural politics, um, I mean, you know, the, the vast majority of activists are, you know, you know, way to the socio-cultural left of of of, of mainstream Britain, um, and there's absolutely no way they're going to win those those voters back. So, you know, the only way that they will survive is through the growth of the of the anywhere class, and the anywhere class is growing partly because higher education is a great <laughs> engine for producing anywhere people. Um, so, you know, it's possible they could hang on. And that the rump of the, you know, the, the, the bottom 30 or 40 percent of society will be fought over by various forms of populists, and that the, you know, the centre right and the centre left will divide the, you know, the, 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 the top 50 percent, you know, the, the graduate class will will divide between centre right and centre left. Um, but um, I don't think the Labour Party will survive. That some new new form of party will emerge to to represent even the, even the kind of left wing graduates of the future. We've given you what I think we call an extension in, uh, in uh, um, Eric, very quickly, and then um, There was a question on, is populism here to stay? I mean, I'm just going to address the anti-immigration populism. Um, all the research that, that we, you know, scholarly research, I think there's a consensus really, is that uh, rates of ethnic change, rates of increase of immigration are related to uh, increased anti-immigration populism. However, uh, and, and by the way, I would include Powellism as populism, by the way. If you really look at that event, uh, it was very much, it fit the populist paradigm. However, if you have a tailing off of, of immigration, a slowing down of the rate of change, then I do think it will go away. And I think we saw in this country in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, the pitch of that, you know, post-Powell, post you really saw the pitch of that immigration issue fade. And I similarly think that if, if we return to sort of lower levels of migration, this issue will largely disappear. Not disappear, but it'll fade. That, okay. that would be my answer to that. Jason? I think politics is important. So if I'm thinking about this question of whether it's here to stay, so a lot depends on what happens in the next couple of years, I think. I mean, you know, Philippe Macron wins in, in France and beats... Uh, uh, what's the face? Le Pen. Le Pen. Yeah, Le Pen. <laughs> then uh, that that represents 
something important. Um, and if Trump goes down the tubes, as he may, may also represent something important. So, um, I'm gonna, you know, we shouldn't forget politics, I think, is where I'll Okay, well, let me do three things. First of all, invite you all upstairs to the Peltz Gallery, which is on the ground floor of this building, for some refreshments. Uh, secondly, to say that in March, Deborah, you, you had, um, Margaret Hodge is coming to speak as part of the Centre of British Politics and Public Life events. If you want the details, uh, check our website, do sign up. I hope many of you do look around our website. And finally, most importantly, to thank you and the panellists and David in particular for a great uh, 90 minutes of, of, of discussion. Thank you very much. Not a